You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Cook, Alan Buck here, Game Day IQ at thegruelingtruth.com, the Thursday evening tradition, live here on Thursday night. Alan Buck, say hello to everyone this evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Glad you all are here to join us, and you'll be glad too. We have got a lot of information packed in here, and it's going to be a heck of a lot of fun. Um, well, I tell Chris, you, it's been I, a couple I, weeks. Yeah, yeah. And we've kind of, you know, the format of the show's changed a little bit temporarily just as we're going through this. And it's, uh, we're kind of just um, going through, an, shall we say, an on this week in history kind of a thing. Uh, going through and it's from been birth dates and occurrences. Raising, and, raising yeah. a lot and of IQs in the process. It raised mine a lot. And, uh, and I know sometimes I throw toss out to you because I know some of these things are, are if they're common, but they're not common. And uh, and you've uh, you you've learned a few things too. On this week's show, we're going to learn who was the first athlete to earn a one million dollars in a single endorsement deal. I know y'all are guessing now, and you're probably <laughs> wrong. <laughs> you're going to hear a couple of NBA records that I don't think ever will be broken. Um, who was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's toughest defender? Uh, you'll hear about a mysterious heavyweight fight and that fighter's mysterious death. There's a there's another in our ones who came before series. Um, this one for contributions in figure skating. Um, we got a humorous Muhammad Ali anecdote and many gee I didn't know that moments in store for you. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, but it's always good. Um, you never know what's going to happen here in between with a few tangents sprinkled in amongst all that knowledge. Oh, yeah. We turn different directions all the time. Um, but, uh, hey, let's, let's start with something from our quips and quotes department. This is a short little story. Some of our regular listeners may have heard this before, but it's, it's very timely um, since it occurred on July the 20th. And remember, we haven't done this for two weeks. We're, we're kind of – but uh, – this occurred on July the 20th, 1969, and it, comes, it came from Glenn Beckert. He played for the Chicago Cubs from 65 to 73, and he was the road roommate of Ron Santo. Now, um, July 20th, 1969, the Cubs are playing at Philadelphia. Now, understand, Phillies fans were never too hospitable to visiting teams, especially to the Cubs. Well, it's the top of the third with a score tied at one apiece. 
Ron Santo hits a two-run shot that gives the Cubs the go-ahead runs in what would become a 6-1 victory. As Santo rounds the bases, the fans stand and applaud. You know, basically a standing ovation. Well, during the time that Santo was running the bases, there was film of a breaking news story being shown on the giant outfield scoreboard. Today, those things are called jumbotrons, but back then, you know. (laughs) But Santo's eating it up. And when he gets to the dugout, he says to his roomie and good friend, Glenn Beckert, and here's a quote, I never had a crowd on the road stand and applaud like that, quote. And Beckert says, unfortunately, it's not for you. Look at the scoreboard. Some guy just stepped on the moon. That was the um, July 20th, 1969, was the day that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. And uh, they were showing that just at that moment. So uh, uh, can you see a guy kind of, you know, trotting the bases on a home run, thinking, hey, this is pretty cool. They're cheering for me. No. Yeah. Sorry, Ron. No. It was Neil Armstrong. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I just always got a kick out of that story, and, and uh, so I thought I'd share it on this, you know, during the week that, that, it, that it happened. What was a jumbed – you know, you brought up a good point. What was a jumbotron called before the word jumbotron? Um, Did they just call it big television out there? Big, big screen, yeah, big screens. Um, I, I know what you. I know because I, I kept thinking the same thing, and I, I used the word jumbotron. I thought, what did they call those things? And now I, I'm sure they don't call them jumbotrons anymore, do they? But that's why I call them. But of course, I also refer to artificial turf as astroturf, and you've corrected me on many occasions. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, uh, we've moved on from AstroTurf. It's now called Field Turf. <laughs> Say it ain't so, Joe. <laughs> um, hey, uh, this is from our unfinished business department. Uh, last week, while celebrating Rune Arledge's contributions to ABC Sports, we talked about ABC's wide world of sports, and Chris identified the skier from the agony defeat part of that introduction to the show as Vinko Bogataj. Well, I got curious, so I was reading up on him, and I ran across this little tidbit that I thought was funny in an ironic sort of way. Apparently, Bogotaj thought so, too. Well, in 1981, ABC hosted a 20th anniversary party celebrating Wide World of Sports. And Vinko Bogotaj, the skier of the Agony Defeat fame, uh, he attended. Well, at that party, Muhammad Ali was asking him for his autograph and and Bogotaj just thought Ali was joking around with him and he and uh, people had to pull him aside and convince him that Ali was serious because um, you know at one time Muhammad Ali was the most famous face recognized most recognizable face in the world and here he is asking this well what he what Vinko Bogotaj thought was he thought he was unknown and, and here is Ali wanting his autograph and he didn't realize how famous he was in America because, you know, on Saturday afternoons we all tuned in and we all watched. And uh, so there you have it. Here's the most recognizable figure in the world asking him for his autograph. <laughs> so I just thought that was kind of humorous. You just but, never uh, know what you're going to find at one of those 20-year reunions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hey, we've got a... Uh, um, uh, I guess this is sort of the baseball uh, from, the, from the birthday of the week department, actually from the whoops department, which means I missed something of significance, so we're going to plug it in here. Um, 
This is from on this day in baseball history, July the 3rd. This was should have been on the, on the show a couple weeks ago and or a few weeks ago, and I missed it, so I apologize. But July the third, nineteen thirty six, San Diego minor leaguer Ted Williams pinch hitting for the pitcher in the seventh inning in a game in with against the Angels gets his first professional hit. It's a long single off the right field fence at L.A.'s. Uh, um, off the fence at uh, Wrigley Field off of Glenn Babler, or Babler, Babler, B-A-B-L-E-R. Mm-hmm. Sorry, folks, don't know the pronunciation. Anyway, a 17-year-old Padres player, um, wait a minute, I said this wrong. I, I some, Somehow it's, I said Wrigley Field. It's not Wrigley Field. It's L.A.'s field. My apologies, folks, because it's the Padres playing against Chavez the Angels. Ravine. Yeah, but, but uh, the 17-year-old Williams... He hit the uh, player. He after he got his hit, he stayed in the game uh, to replace the the pitcher that he batted for. He retired the side in order, but he was removed then from the mound in the next frame before he gave uh, uh, when he gave up two home runs. So, uh, anybody out there know that Ted Williams pitched in a Pacific Coast League game? Sure no. did. Got uh, got retired uh, one one side one you know one half of an inning, but the next inning they uh, tagged him for a couple home runs, and that I believe was the only time that he pitched. <laughs> but um, I, I had no idea Ted Williams ever was a pitcher. So uh, no, just, uh, I had no idea myself um, until you just mentioned it. Yep. So there you have it. So you know, next time you're at one of those uh, trivia parties and they say true or false, Ted Williams pitched in professional baseball, you'll know. Um, Here's something that was very interesting to read about. Birthdays, first of all, July the 18th, 1929. Happy birthday to Dick Button, American figure skater. And he belongs in our continuing series of trailblazers known as the ones who came before. He won the men's singles in figure skating in the 1948 and the 1952 Olympics. He is the only, only non-European man ever to have become a European champion. He is credited as having been the first skater to successfully land a double axle jump in competition when he did it in 1948. He also landed the first triple jump of any kind. It was a triple loop in 1952. He also invented the flying camel spin, which originally was known as the button camel. So hats off to Dick Button. He's still alive and living in New York, New York City, I believe. Not sure, but uh, and he would be 91 at this point. But uh, I had no idea that he was such, so um, you know such a trailblazer. I mean, you know, he's doing things nobody had ever done on the ice before. He's still back alive. Then. Yep. Born July eighteenth, nineteen twenty nine. Yep. Making a good run out of it, isn't he? I tell you, figure skating. I bet he's in pretty good physical shape too. I mean, assuming he hadn't having debilitating disease or anything, because you know, figure skating it's pretty pretty taxing and. Uh, and you can do it all your life, too. So, you know, if you still have He's active. the only non-European man to become the European champion. Yep. That's what I said. 
long ago. I know. You, you, yeah, he, that, I was that here. I think was pretty fascinating. That's pretty darn I good. I was here, but I'm just saying, that's like, you know, normally the only time you become another country's champion is in the world of professional sport or professional wrestling. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean, um, not something like figure skating. Yeah, yeah, and that was a sport that, uh, you know, the Europeans dominated. But uh, those two Olympics, and then he became the champion. So good for him. Um, here's one. Uh, a birthday in July the 22nd, 1930. Charles L. Liston. You probably knew him better as Sonny or the Big Bear. He passed away in 1970. So he, he died at 40. He competed in professional boxing from 1953 to 1970. Liston became the heavyweight champion in 1962 by knocking out Floyd Patterson. Liston knocked out Patterson again the following year and became the inaugural champion of the WBC. That's the World Boxing Council. Excuse me, World Boxing Council. Um, That was a... that would have been in 1963, you know, that that was, you know, the beginning of alphabet soup, I guess, for uh, for boxing, you know. It used the WBC and the um, uh, IBC and the WBA, I think. I can't, I can't remember all of them. But anyway, um, as far, okay, he was, he was such a dominant force in the ring, he was regarded as almost unbeatable. His record when he retired was 50 and 4 with 39 knockouts. 39 wow. out of his 50 wins were knockouts. Well, you know, like I said, he they, he was regarded as almost unbeatable. That changed in 1964 when he fought Muhammad Ali. Their first fight was scheduled for February 25, 1964. Um and 43 out of 46 sports writers picked Liston to win by knockout. He was a 7-1 to one favorite to win. Well, Ali was far more mobile than Liston, but Ali also could punch with the best of them. So don't forget, Ali had incredibly fast hands, probably the quickest hands in the heavyweight division at that time and maybe in history. Um, I think that's a pretty... Uh, pretty widely accepted opinion uh, because his quickness was just amazing. Well, anyway, in the third round, Ali inflicted a bruise under Liston's right eye and a cut under his left eye. It was the first time in Liston's career that he'd been cut, and it required eight stitches to close. Well, after the fourth round, Ali claimed, or excuse me, complained to his trainer, Angelo Dundee, that something was burning his eyes. Dundee had to calm Ali down and even put his pinky in Ali's eye and then into his own eye, and it burned pretty badly. So as Dundee tried to get Ali's vision ready to go out for the next round, the referee had become aware of the problem, and he said later that Ali was a few seconds from disqualification. Um, The only theory they could come up with about this foreign substance was that maybe some of the medication used on Liston's cut might inadvertently have gotten into List, onto Liston's gloves and then Ali's face and eyes. Well, the last thing Dundee said to Ali before the start of the fifth round was, run! <laughs> well, so that's what Ali did. He, he did so, staying away from Liston for the entire fifth round. And he declared later all he could see was Liston as a shadow uh, moving around. 
Well, by the sixth round, yeah, yeah. By the sixth round, Ali's vision had cleared enough to take the fight to Liston. Ali appeared angry, and he fought a very aggressive fight, landing numerous trademark combinations that not only come quickly, but also packed a lot of wallop. Ali won round six decisively. Liston failed to answer the bell for the seventh round due to his injured shoulder. He had an injured injured shoulder previously, but anyway, uh, did he not come out because of the shoulder, or did he not come out because Ali knocked a snot out of him in the sixth? I don't know. Well, the rematch, less than nine months later, was on November 13, 1964. That was delayed when Ali suffered a hernia shortly before the scheduled fight. The fight took place on May 25th in 1965 in Lewiston, Maine, of all places. Um, I forget why it got moved up. to. Oh, it, oh, it had to do with uh, one of the fighters, and I believe it was listed not having a license to fight in, uh, mm. in Madison Square Garden. Uh, but anyway, it's in Lewiston, Maine. Midway through the first round, Lewis, or Liston threw a left jab, and Ali went over it with a fast right knocking the former champion down. Liston went down on his back. He rolled over, got to his right knee, and then fell on his back again. And many in attendance didn't see Ali deliver the punch. The fight quickly descended into chaos. Uh, Referee Jersey Joe Walcott, you remember that name, that former world heavyweight champion himself, he had a hard time getting Ali to go to a neutral corner. Ali initially stood over his fallen opponent, gesturing and yelling at him, Get up and fight, sucker. I remember that because it, it didn't come out sucker. It was sucker, but that he because Ali was taunting him. He was getting, and uh, and he and he said the reason he said it. Ali said, "Get up and fight, sucker. Nobody will believe this." Well, that fight ranks as one of the shortest heavyweight title bouts in history, and and many in the crowd, the small crowd that they hadn't even settled into their seats when the fight was stopped. The official time of stoppage was announced at a minute into the first round, which was wrong. Liston went down at 144, got up at 156, and Walcott stopped the fight at 212. But the debate debate over whether Ali's punch and knockout were legitimate, that'll go on forever. Some never saw the the phantom punch, and others saw it and said the knockdown was legitimate, or excuse me, said the the knockdown was legitimate, but the knockout was not. And still others said that Ali's punch lifted Liston's left foot with most of his weight resting on it well off the ground. So that's one of those debates, you know, can go on forever. Well, Liston went on fighting until 1970, but he passed away under mysterious circumstances on December 30th, 1970, in his Las Vegas home, but he was not discovered until his wife returned home from a two-week trip on January the 5th, 1971. But that yeah. smells good. Yeah, a little bit pungent, shall we say? But yeah, there was. They said at the time uh, it was a it was a, a heroin overdose. Well, all the people that knew Liston said no chance. He was scared to death of needles. Apparently, he did have a little bit of a drug problem and all. But he there was. A, I think there was a syringe found that kind of thing. You know, evidence, quote unquote evidence. Except that since Liston hated needles. Everybody that knew him said there was no way. So, you know, the the organized crime influence in his life may have reared its ugly head at some point, uh, may have had something to do with the money changing hands on those fights. So, anyway, that nobody will ever know the answer to that one. Wow. 
You just never know what you're going to learn here on Game Day IQ. I did, yeah, I had no idea about that and, and um, <clears throat> until I dug into it a little bit. But um, it was fascinating. Here's something. Here's a. Um, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of breezy. I'm so excited about the next things that we have. We've got several other really good things coming that I want to hurry up and get to them. Okay. Um, Michael Douglas Williams, July 23rd, 1966 is his birthday. Kind of an unrecognizable name. I mean, yeah, I've heard of Michael Williams, but not much of anything. But here's the reason he's on here. He was a former NBA player out of Baylor. He had a nice career, but he has one record that is going to be very difficult to beat. During the 1992-93 season, he finished the season with a streak of 84 consecutive made free throws, breaking the record of 78 consecutive that was, that was held by uh, the NBA's career free throw percentage leader, Calvin Murphy. Well, and imagine, folks, when you go to the free throw line in a basketball game, you might shoot, what, 5, 6, 10 in a game, maybe, yeah. So this record, it's Depending not like you're minute. standing. Yeah, it's not like you're standing there and somebody's rebounding for you and you're going to shoot a hundred and see how many rows you can hit. It's a few now and a few later. Plus you're exhausted. Well, his streak of 84 ended the season and he began the next season by hitting his first 13. So that gave him a record of 97 consecutive regular season free throws made. That record was set over 19 games. So there you have it. He's averaging about five free throws per game. 19 games from March 24th to November the 9th. Now, I would, I would I, reckon it was probably harder to go to the line back then, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, they would it, let them play through stuff a little more than they would now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's, it's pretty I, – I just can't – it's unfathomable. You know, people scream – and it's not like golf where – the crowd's hushed, and you're focused on your making. Your, everybody's screaming bloody murder at you, and you're out there, and you get and you're shooting five of them in a game, and you hit all five of them for 19 games in a row. But anyway, I thought that was very impressive. But um, here's something else, and not to be left out. We're talking about baseball now. This is not a birthday commemoration. It happened July the 24th, 1931. This is a baseball feat you've probably never heard about. Um, please forgive the grammatical errors in that sentence. Um, but anyway, it was on this, that date, July 24, 1931, that Babe Herman became the first National League player in the modern era to hit for the cycle um, more than once in the same season. He also completed the cycle on May 18, 1931. Well, on September, let's see, um, Okay, he hit it on May 18, 1931, then he hit it on July the 14th, and on September 30th, 1933, he hit for the cycle for the third time, tying Bob Musil for the Major League Baseball record. Adrian Beltra tried, tied that record in 2015 with his third cycle. Another interesting side note with, from Babe Herman, he hit the first ever home run in a night game on July 10th, 1935. So there you have it. If anybody ever says, hey, who hit the first night wow. game home run, I would have guessed, oh, I'd probably guessed uh, Ted Williams or 
Joe DiMaggio or somebody from the 40s or, or so, or maybe even the 50s. It was Babe Herman in 1935. Hmm. Wow. So there you go. Um, so that that was baseball. We're Let's see. We have talked baseball, basketball, figure skating, boxing. and boxing so far. Um, this is we're going all over the place, but you're gonna folks, you're gonna pick up some more nuggets here. Um, here's one that I threw in here. I was a little partial because I'm an Indiana Hoosier, but then the more I went dug into what this man did, he was pretty incredible. Um, the birthday anniversary of Walt Bellamy. July 24th, 1939, he passed away in 2013. He was an IU Hoosier. Well, he was the number one draft pick in the 1961 NBA draft, making him the first Indiana Hoosier to be the number one pick. Wow. But but listen to this. While at Indiana, he averaged 15.5 rebounds per game and has the most rebounds in school history with 1,087 in only 70 games. Remember, freshmen were not eligible back then, so that was three seasons. Nowadays, they play 35 games in a single season. Well, his 70 games, that was three seasons. As a senior, he averaged 17.8 rebounds a game. That is still IU's record. Now, listen to this. He he was on the U.S. Olympic gold medal winning team at the 1960 Olympics in Rome. Check out this starting lineup. Terry Dishinger, who averaged 28 points per game at Purdue, Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, and Jerry Lucas. With that team, they could have won the games playing four on five, for crying out loud. With four future Hall of Famers and Bellamy, being the second-best rebounder on that team, as we know Jerry Lucas was even better than, than Bellamy at rebounding, and it was coached by Pete Newell. How could they do anything but win the gold? Well, Bellamy goes on to play in the NBA. He was the NBA's Rookie of the Year in 1961 and 62. He averaged 31.6 points per game, second only to Chamberlain's 37.6. Bellamy's 19.6 rebounds per game in that season is the third best for rookies behind Chamberlain's 27 and Bill Russell's 19.7. So Walt Bellamy's in pretty darn good company with Chamberlain and Russell there. His rookie season, uh, 51.9 field goal percentage, led the NBA. So as, as in addition to his success as a rookie, Bellamy was a four-time All-Star during his 14-year career. And here is a record that might never be broken. Another one. Due to trades between teams with offset game schedules, Walt Bellamy set the record for the most regular season games played in one season with 88. The NBA season is 82 games long because he was traded from one team to the other and the other, the second team he went to hadn't played as many games, he got 88 regular season games in. Hmm. I don't think that record's ever going to be broken. No. Um, no. So anyway, <clears throat> that's a pretty darn impressive uh, bunch of information about Walt Bellamy that uh, 
you know, I, the only reason I looked it up is because he was a Hoosier, and I thought, hey, that's pretty neat. But yeah. my God, to be to be that close to Russell and Chamberlain, uh, pretty impressive. Um, here's now here's the uh, answer to one of our our teasers. July the 25th, 1941, is Nate Thurman's birthday. He passed away in 2016. He was an NBA All-Star, t- uh, excuse me, seven times during the 66 and 67 season and the 67-68 seasons. He averaged 21.3 and 22 rebounds per game, respectively. <clears throat> Another big rebounder there. I'm not going to go into his entire career, but I do want to emphasize his defensive play. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar called Thurman the toughest defender he ever faced during Abdul-Jabbar's 20-year NBA career. If I'd have asked you to name his toughest defender, I don't know if you'd have gotten to him, Nate Thurman, in, in picks. I'm sure oh, you one started thing about with Nate, Nate Thurman. He's the first player in NBA history to officially record a quadruple double. Oh, yes, I saw that, and I didn't write it down. And and prior to his quadruple double, was it the block shots they didn't keep track of? That At was the fourth so. thing they added. Because yeah, because they um, you know obviously it's points, rebounds, assists, and block shots. And prior to, um, like, not too much earlier, he did. They didn't count uh, count those. But um, yeah, that he grabbed that forty-two incredible. rebounds in a game one time. Only Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell recorded more rebounds in an NBA game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's also yeah, one of the fiftieth greatest players in NBA history. Mm-hmm. Known to fans as Nate the Great. Thurman has number 42 jersey retired by both the Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Right, yeah. I, I thought that, that was fantastic. He had, see, he's one of these guys that with so many great centers in that era, you know, you don't think about Bellamy or Thurman, and they're both right up there. Um, and then, then, of course, you know, you can get into debates about teammates and quality, you know, of teams, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh Anyway, um, glad we glad we brought out information on on those two guys. Um, they did contribute yeah, a lot. Here's another uh, great birthday, July the twenty fifth, nineteen fifty four. Sweetness, Walter Payton. Oh, wow. He passed away in nineteen ninety nine. Sadly, he ranks second on the NFL's career rushing leaders list with 16,726 yards behind only Emmett Smith's 18,355. Now, here we could go into a lengthy debate about running behind the Bears offensive line versus running behind the Dallas Cowboys line or Smith's 226 game versus Peyton's 190 games, but we're not going to belabor those issues. Also, you could Google Peyton's legions of accomplishments. Um, I'm, you know, not going to go into all that stuff here. I'm just going to relate a couple of things here that you might or might not know in an effort to raise your game day IQ. Surely you remember Peyton's stiff arm, which had become unpopular with running backs, but which Walter used very effectively as he dished out punishment to his would-be tacklers. I was told I, I, my sons, um, particularly Jameson, and and he was he was a played quarterback position and carried the ball a lot. And he 
used the, the stiff arm. And I had him watch Walter Payton. Walter Payton attacked his tacklers. I mean, when it, was, when it came time he was going to take a hit, he accelerated into them, and he hit them too. Um, but, but other times, yeah, he would just use that stiff arm. And when you stiff arm, you don't hang that arm out there. You keep it next to your body. And when you get within striking range, that's when you basically throw a punch with the heel of your hand. You keep your hand open. You don't use your fist. But, um, and, and that way, when you hit somebody in the face mask, which is legal if you're carrying the ball, it's difficult for them to remember they're trying to grab you when their head's going backwards real fast. So, but Walter was very efficient at that. Another of his of Peyton's signature maneuvers was the stutter step. You remember that high-stepping, irregular pace oh, run yeah. that he used to use? Well, he oh, developed yeah. that. Yeah, it, it, was, it was awesome, and it worked. He developed that as a way to distract his pursuers during long runs, saying that it, it startled them into thinking, and it gave him some advantage over players who were actually faster runners than him. And in his autobiography, he likened that stutter step to kind of an option play. When he was stutter stepping, defenders would have to commit to a pursuit angle based upon whether they thought he would accelerate after the stutter step or cut. He would read this angle that they took and do the opposite of what the defender had committed to do. So that's how he de- that was the purpose, and that's how he developed it. And uh, it, for those who remember him, now you know why it was so effective. For those who don't remember him, look up some game film. He was impressive. But here's another thing that people of a certain age will find impressive. After scoring touchdowns, Peyton declined to celebrate. Instead, he would often hand the ball to his teammates or the official. He disapproved of the growing practice of touchdown celebrations. He preferred post-game antics, such as rushing into the locker room and locking his teammates out in the cold while taking a long shower. Although Peyton would have won the respect of his peers and coaches by his running alone, he retired as the clear career leader in receptions for a running back with 492 for over 4,500 yards. And he still holds the career record for a running back with eight touchdown passes. I think that's passes thrown. Because yeah. the way I read it, that that's so... It has to be. Yeah. That was pretty cool, but uh, really yeah. interesting reading about Walter. You know, you talk about that stutter step. Uh, you got to remember the era that I grew up on the playground was the uh, high point of Walter Payton's rushing career, and uh, I saw that move uh, try to be replicated on many, many a playground across the tri-state area. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was um, – um, And he had that I mouth had... guard, uh, you know, he had the, the – mouthpiece with the big old lip guard yeah and uh i remember all the running backs had to have the matching one growing up in the in the oh, yeah. optimist football league and uh it was like a status symbol you're trying to be like walter payton yeah and you know i think the nfl yeah. did it a solid by naming the man of the year award after walter payton and uh you know who himself was an mvp in 1977 super bowl champion in 1986 uh, with the Bears in Super Bowl twenty, one of the greatest travesties, I think, is the fact that he did not get to score a touchdown in the 46-10 to 10 ass-whipping that they gave the New England Patriots. Yep, I agree with you. And, and the thing that – and I, I really like and respect Mike Ditka, but I think he um, 
in just trying to do the gimmicky thing, having William Refrigerator Perry carry it over from the one, uh, that took that touchdown away from Walter. And Walter had worked, and, I mean, he'd given, what, 12? Two, two touchdowns. Yeah, he got two touchdowns in that game. Did he? And I'm not I saying, did not remember yeah, that. I, that's, that was like, you know... If the fridge, you know, the fridge is going to get his because that's what it was back then. But the fact that right. he got two and Walter got none, um, I, I, th- I think if Dicka had one coaching decision to do over in his life, he probably would have gave Walter the ball on the goal line uh, for one of those. I, yeah, I agree with you. I was not aware that 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 Perry got two of them in that game, and I, I watched. The, that was the, that was their thing though back then was the. Uh, the fad of putting the biggest guy on the field in at fullback and having him carry it and just, you know, see if you can stop the biggest guy on the field before he can gain one yard. And, uh, um, you know, it worked, but uh, you're, you're 100% right. Walter built that team into what it was, and uh, he deserved that touchdown. But anyway, um, that's uh, – we we could talk all day long about Walter. He is such was such a class act and such a talented individual and uh, such a such a hard worker too. But <clears throat> now let's let's turn to baseball and something else that I don't think is ever going to be duplicated. Okay. The the date is July twenty seventh, nineteen thirty. Ken Ash earned a win against the Chicago Cubs with just one inning of relief and with him throwing one pitch. He played for the Cincinnati Reds. He was called in uh, to relieve uh, – he was called in by Cincinnati manager Dan Howley with the Reds trailing 3-2 to two in the top of the sixth. The Cubs had two runners on base, okay? Now, you've got to listen and, and mentally go here because you gotta got to figure this out. Hack Wilson was on third. Danny Taylor was on first. At the plate for Chicago was Charlie Grimm. Grimm grounded Ash's first pitch to the Reds' shortstop, Hod Ford. Wilson broke for home. Ford threw the ball to Red third baseman uh, Tony Cuccinello, who threw to the Reds' catcher, Clyde Suckforth, Suckforth, S-U-K-F-O-R-T-H, who successfully ran down Wilson and tagged him for out number one. In the meantime, Grimm, after reaching first base, set off for second. Well, Taylor was still occupying that base. Grimm tried returning to first, but Suckforth threw the ball to the Reds' first baseman, Joe Strip. Strip tagged Grimm for out number two. Taylor took off for third base. Strip threw the ball to Cuccinello, who tagged Taylor out to complete a six to five to two to three to five triple play. Oh wow! Ken Ash, Ken Ash was pinch hit for in the bottom of the sixth inning, and Cincinnati scored four runs to take the lead, which they held. So Ken Ash gets credit for the win, having thrown one pitch and getting a triple play. How's that, folks? <laughs> I, think, I, I I like that one. We may we may have to uh, revisit that one again on 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 game day IQ at some point. Uh, uh, maybe when we get uh, get into baseball season next year with uh, and when we're on the on the radio and all too, 
expand our audience. Absolutely. Um, on, on, on that same date, July 27th, 1938, for the second consecutive day, Hank Greenberg hit two home runs in one day. He accomplished that feat a record 11 times during that season. 1938 season, Hank Greenberg hit two home runs in a day 11 times. Not a whole lot of Major League Baseball players can say they, do, they have done no, that. Absolutely not. But, but uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, let's see. We can go back into the uh, basketball world. This is something I have covered before, and uh, Chris, I know you, you're very familiar with this. But on July the 28th, 1943, Bill Bradley was born. Now, Bill Bradley was in the Basketball Hall of Fame. He's a former senator from New York. As a high school senior, Bill Bradley was considered the top prep player in the country. He accepted a scholarship to Duke University, but after breaking his foot during a baseball game, he rethought his decision with regard to life after basketball. This is what I didn't know. I, we've talked about Bill Bradley many times, but I didn't know that. That broken foot from baseball made him sit down and think about what's life going to be like after basketball. He elected to go to Princeton instead of Duke because of its record for preparing students for United States Foreign Service work. This meant giving up his scholarship at Duke and not getting any aid from Princeton because of his family's wealth. And I'm not, I, they, I don't know that they were filthy rich, but they were rich enough that he didn't get any help. Well, that's a huge decision, but wisely based on his consideration for a successful future and the uncertainty of basketball. You know, we talk about it all the time, players going to school not to be a student, but just to play basketball so they can play in the NBA. But, you know, you could trip going down the steps and basketball is over for you. You left out part of the story. What's that? After oh, he graduated I in night. Oh, sorry. I didn't. Oh, I haven't finished the story. Yeah, I just I just okay. I took a pause to uh, to uh, take a uh, drink of, of my uh, Pedialyte actually, to be honest. With oh, you. okay. I was like, the man took you know he he took two years off to attend Oxford after graduating Princeton. Yep. yep. On a he road scholarship and put the MBA on hold. Yeah, yeah, he did that, and while he was there. He um, played on a European uh, championship. He won a European Champions Cup, which is the predecessor to the EuroLeague. He won the championship while he was on his Rhodes Scholarship. Um, he, he, well, before, before we leave that, he, he was at Princeton, obviously. He set a lot of records there, uh, one of which, and I can't remember it. It was in baseball. He, he hit, I don't know, hit 320 or three. 30 or something. He was a darn good baseball player while he was there. But perhaps the most impressive thing he did was leading the Princeton Tigers to the Final Four in 1965. They lost to Michigan in the semifinal game, but defeated Wichita State in the consolation game. That Back then, they played for third place. The consolation game, Bill Bradley scored 58 points in that game and earned the honor of being named Final four of the MVP. He's the, uh, even though he did not win, but they got third place. He also is the only man in history to have played in the NCAA Final Four, 
won an Olympic gold medal. He won the 1964 uh, gold medal in, in Tokyo. He won a European Champions Cup, as I mentioned earlier. That was the predecessor to the EuroLeague. And he won an NBA championship. He won with the Knicks in 70 and 73 both. But, uh, you know, that was a man, case of a man at the right place at the right time because he was in Olympic year, so he won that. He, as you point out, he took, put the NBA on hold to complete his Rhodes Scholarship study in, in Oxford and uh, played on a European team that won the championship. And when he came back in the NBA, he was successful there and won two championships with the Knicks. So there you have Then he went on to a long career as a state senator for or a, a senator from New York, not a state senator, but the, you know one of the two senators. New Jersey. Was it New Jersey? That's right. It was New Jersey. I'm, I'm sorry. I misspoke. Um, I, I thought it was New York. I, I just I mis, misspoke. But yeah, New York, New Jersey, it all runs together. It's all the same. I, but I here that was one of those. That was part of the story that I absolutely knew. I didn't have to research it, and then I misquoted it. So, <clears throat> pardon me. Sorry about that. But. Um, one last thing, and before we probably touch base on a couple other things, on July the 29th, 1926, Donald James Carter was born, passed away on, uh, excuse me, passed away in 2012. Who was Donald James Carter? He was a pro bowler. He was the six-time bowler of the year. He was the dominant bowler throughout the 50s and beyond, and he was a founding member of the Professional Bowlers Association in 1958 and that's why I included him today no that's not why this is why I included him today he is the first athlete to earn one million dollars in a single endorsement deal so did anybody get it right I didn't think so <laughs> he uh, got that from Ebonite International which bowlers everywhere know Ebonite was the bowling ball company back then but and, uh, when you think about it, I mean, it makes sense, you know. When when you asked me this question the other day, and mm -hmm. I, you know, mm -hmm. I threw out somebody like Pele, because I went mm -hmm. with the international appeal. But when you think about the impact that professional bowling has, and how there is definite merchandise, you know, opportunities to where you're going to want to mm -hmm. have the ball, you're going to want to have the shoe, you're going to want to have the glove, the wrap, you know, yep. the stuff that the players use, it makes yep. sense. But it just yep. it was not anywhere on my near on my radar uh, no. when I tried to make an educated guess when it was just you and I on the phone the other day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was not like you said, not on your radar. Um if 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 I would have said it's a bowler, you would have had two guesses. Um Don Carter P. and Weber. the other one Weber, yeah. Yeah. And I would have guessed Weber. I would have gone Pete I Weber. Would, yeah, I would have gone Pete Weber as well. But um, anyway, Donald James Carter. So, uh, you know, hats off to him. And uh, and I uh, would have only gone Pete Weber because Carter was a little before my time. Yeah. Yeah, Weber is certainly, for the, those of us of our era, he's more well-known. And, and, in fact, we had him twice. Pete Weber's son, Pete Weber, is also was a, was a prominent bowler if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, Donald Carter, uh, pretty impressive, million dollars. And uh, just think what that was worth in 1955, 56, 58, whenever it was he got it. 
that's a sweet wow. that's a sweet contract. Yeah. So where's yeah. my million dollar endorsement deal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but maybe someday. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I still think you got your your uh million dollar deal we won't mention it on the air because you might still be able to follow through with it. Uh oh, yeah. uh, has to do with your day job. I I think and I read about that when you post periodically things and you know, when people participate. I think that's a terrific idea and, and uh, this is Absolutely. the right area to do it. Could go countrywide. But Absolutely. anyway. Um we have some just, this is an odd time in sports, but uh, we here in Indiana, we're planning on going forward with high school football as ordered. Um, as it should be. As it should be. It's going to start in just a few weeks, and uh, we're looking forward to it, getting back in the saddle. We'll keep you all posted, and uh, yep. um, hopefully hopefully there Get won't the be any. Off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but now, you know what? The case in our, uh, you know, Kentucky announced this week that they're moving, um, you know, they're moving football later. Ba- they're moving it back, and then Illinois yeah. announced yesterday that they're going to play football in the spring. Okay, I, I knew somebody did. Yeah, yeah, they're moving boys' soccer and, well, maybe boys' and girls' soccer and football and which it'll be else. interesting to see what effect that'll have on high school baseball because. It seems like oh, football gosh. and baseball have a lot of folks that mirror each other. Yeah. Could you imagine trying to do the double, playing both seasons in the same? Mm. Yeah, I think maybe the shame of it is, I guess it's bad. Yeah, it's bad enough for high school kids having to deal with this, and and some of them, as we've talked about, lost their seasons last year. Whether it be when basketball was truncated, or you know, baseball, or and softball, those kind of things. But now to have to put football on top of baseball and say, here, son, pick. Which do you want to do? You know, well, that's, over that's, there in uh, the People's Republic of Illinois, uh, I wouldn't expect any less. <laughs> you know, do, do we yeah. get a rim shot there? Uh, yeah, no, I don't have just, the uh, queued up, but I'm just saying. And then you got the People's Commonwealth of Kentucky, which isn't much different, and it's just it, it's amazing. But yeah. Well, you yeah, know, I don't want to take away is. any thunder. Did did you have anything else to cover this week on Game Day IQ? Um, had a had a quote or two uh, that I thought were kind of humorous. If we want to, um, here's here's one from uh, Alan Minter. He was a British middleweight boxer in the seventies. He said, "Sure, there have been injuries and even some deaths in boxing, but none of them really that serious." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, here's one uh, from Gerald Ford former president Gerald Ford I know I'm getting better at golf because I'm hitting fewer spectators <laughs> and and here's the one the most illogical logic that you really can't argue with from the hit leader himself Pete Rose it's a round ball and a round bat and you gotta hit it square how about that? I think that's hilarious. Wow. So, what a way to so, end the show. Simple. Yeah. Yet yeah. it has the, the weight, line. you know, I mean. Yeah, you just gotta let that one sink in. Less from Charlie Hustle. That's right. That's right. He hit it he hit it he hit it on the nose, didn't he? 
Yes, so, hey, with that, uh, I'm gonna. I guess I'm gonna go sit outside in a lawn chair and enjoy the rain that hit during our show. I hope nobody was disturbed by any thunder that he might have oh, heard. It's raining background. here. It's raining here now. It's heading this way. It just opened up where I'm at well, sure. here at this location. I live so. consider I live considerably far farther west than than Chris. So I'm I'm out here in God's country. We get work. the weather I'm first. I'm still at work. So I'm. Oh, you're I'm talking okay. to you from the friendly confines of my office tonight, and uh, oh, that's why we had no doggies. Yep, no doggies. Yep, tonight. that's what, okay. Did that? I got to still pick one up at doggy daycare, but you know we'll be back in a couple weeks. Hopefully, getting ever so closer to being over terrestrial airs as well. Um, yeah. So stay tuned here. We'll have updates at gamedayiq.com and at thegrillingtruth.com yeah. as well. Looking forward to it and uh, appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. And with that, I'm going to say good night to all good sports. For Alan Buck, I'm Chris Cook, thanking you for listening to GameDayIQ at thegrillingtruth.com. A commercial? Right, and you know what that means. Time for a snack? Wrong. I want you to do some heart-healthy exercise. Yes, you! Try some seated leg extensions right now. Just lift each leg up and extend it straight one at a time, six to eight times. I can do that. Yes, you can. Remember, every commercial is a chance to sneak in heart-healthy activity. Visit findexerciseanywhere.com and speak with your doctor to learn more about the risks of heart failure. Between prepping ingredients, setting the table, and planning your tomorrow, sometimes you need an extra hand with dinner. Delta Faucet is here to help. Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot with Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology and fill it with the perfect amount of water. Done. Visit deltafaucet.com voiceiq to see how Voice IQ can fill your dog's bowl, wash your hands, and more.